welcome to the Eclectic Highway. My name is Kelly Sunnicol, and today I am thrilled to have Professor John Haywood on the show. Now, the foundation of all of my knowledge about engines was built on Professor Haywood's textbook, Internal Combustion Engine Fundamentals. I was first introduced to this book in the IC Engines course at the University of Wisconsin, which at the time was taught by Professor David Foster. Now, everyone who works in the IC Engines field knows the name Haywood. His book has influenced generations of engine researchers, and I am so honored to have him on my show. So without further ado, let's start the interview. Now, I'm pretty sure all of my IC Engine listeners know who you are. To most of them, your book, Internal Combustion Engine Fundamentals, is the Bible when it comes to learning about engines. But I do have a broader audience, so for people not in the engine research area, can you talk a bit about your background and what you're working on now? Yes, I can. And my background is in mechanical engineering, but it moved into combustion that pulls in chemistry and um, emissions, deeper chemistry. And then I got involved in engines and uh, engines are complicated devices. So there's all sorts of flow and heat transfer uh, knowledge that's needed. So I got pulled and pulled and pulled into this. And when I came back to MIT, I was explicitly asked to, to join a group that had started working on emissions um, from cars, air pollutant emissions. And it was a brand new sort of engineering science um, field. That was very exciting. And so I've uh, that pulled me in emissions and it was new. And then obviously uh, more and more engine combustion, engine operation, bits of engine design, all sorts of things got pulled in. So that's how I really got pulled into engines when I came back to MIT as a faculty member. Okay, very, very interesting. So how are you doing lately? I've been asking all of my guests so far, because all of these podcasts have happened since the start of the pandemic. How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed your life during these last few months, or has it? Well, yes, because I, with my wife, are at home, and... Um, we get on well together, so that's we're not climbing the walls yet. <laughs> we're doing fine. But it, it's different, and particularly I, I'm missing the, the work interactions with my fellow colleagues, you know, brainstorming around issues that we're trying to sort out. I'm doing that on Zoom and other uh, contact uh, techniques, but one misses the personal contact and in a sense the the joshing fun part of it gets a bit squeezed out. So I'll be glad to get back to normal, but I'm not, as I said, climbing the wars yet. Yeah, so for all my listeners out there, even Professor Haywood is using Zoom. So it's not just you, it's also even Professor Haywood's using Zoom. And I know it's been it's been very very tough for me to get used to that too, because I enjoy the same types of interaction that you're talking about. And really, you can get a little bit of that, you know, when you have your video turned on, but really that sort of stuff happens when you're when you're live right next to somebody. So I definitely feel for you there. And I am starting to climb the walls. So um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully this thing, uh, this thing is over 
over soon. So that brings up an interesting point, though, and kind of leads us into some of what I wanted to talk to you about today. So going into this pandemic, we already had a very uncertain transportation landscape, right? So we had the recent we have the recent rise of electric vehicles. Some of the companies are putting resources into fuel cell vehicles and so on, alternative fuels and so, so on and so forth. But now that things are opening back up and hopefully we're coming out of our lockdowns, you know, perhaps we need to look at things a bit differently. So what do you think transportation should look like in the post-pandemic world, at least in the near future? Well, let's start with where we were before the pandemic started. And I, I think a couple of big areas were starting to get looked at more carefully. And one was congestion. And for the broader public, that really is the number one problem. Those who suffer from congestion hate it. And they're very frustrated by it because there really aren't any obvious or easy to implement solutions. And the other are the emissions problems. And of course, there are two of these and we we do want to keep them separate and keep them both sort of in the hot seat. And one is the still there air pollution problem. Not as bad in the United States as in many other parts of the world where it's dreadful, but still nowhere near good enough. And we've still got transportation sources, you know, like diesel engine vehicles, buses, um, trucks, where we've really got to make serious progress. Cars, we're doing quite well, but other parts of the world where they don't have good fuels and they don't have, in a sense, the money to buy the technology that's needed in gasoline engines, still a big problem. And I think ideas had started, particularly in the congestion. If you ask the question, where can you find a a 10, 15% reduction in traffic density during the critical sort of rush hour periods? And the answer is there really aren't any 10% or more pieces lying around waiting to be picked up. They just aren't there. So we were stuck and people were starting to think, well, maybe we've got to change our view of work and much less of it is done in places where we're all together in a fixed place at a fixed time and there's very little flexibility in shifting the rush hour. We've expanded it. It starts earlier. It goes on later, all that sort of stuff. But, and then the pandemic came in, and I've been talking with one or two colleagues about, well, what's the likely impact of this as we move out of it in due course? That may not be a while, but in due course. And the answer is we will have have done some serious experiments and we will have data to analyze the impacts. And one is we really dial traffic down and the traffic during the early parts of the pandemic was really low. It's climbing a bit, but it's nowhere near normal levels. So now we know that if you really cut back on traffic and that really gives us time before in the long term it may grow back to where we, you know, again have bad congestion. But that would really give us breathing space. So that's one. We've seen the benefits of cutting back on traffic through flexible and working at home. Put the two together. It's more than just working at home. Maybe flexible work hours. There 
we've almost forgotten about the emissions problems because we've been seriously distracted. But they're still there and still in need of urgent progress. And so I think what our thoughts on post-pandemic dealing with emissions, both of them, greenhouse gas and air pollution, is we won't have as much money. So what we really want are cost-effective, less expensive paths forward, at least for the next decade or two. And I think as a third piece, we need to, in a sense, help the auto industry get back on its feet. And so out of that comes a sense that the environment in the future will be different. People will be more receptive to working at home, both workers and bosses. They will be more interested in flexibility. They already are, but that will get underlined. They will be leery of getting into crowded subway cars and buses. That's a problem, and we're going to have to think hard about how we deal with that. Um, and money will be tight. So what do you think, what do you think then, given that scenario that you just painted, what do you think the propulsion systems in cars should look like? I mean, do you think we should be um, put really pushing the all-electric vehicles? Do you think we should be pushing uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, alternative fuels? What, what do you think that looks like? Well, well a simple and, and actually obvious answer is we push them all in the technology-getting-better direction. But I think we've got to be obviously more sophisticated in where we put our resources. And I've been thinking, as have many professionals in this area, that we've underrated hybrids. You know, an IC engine, a gasoline engine, electric motor, modest, modest-sized battery that, that stores the regenerative braking energy. Now, what the standard ICE engine vehicle doesn't do, and it's a serious lack, is it doesn't use the, the energy that you can recover, regenerate through regenerative braking. Now, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, battery electrics, fuel cell vehicles all have the opportunity for doing that because they have a storage battery on board that that energy can get put back into. Um, and that's big, that effect. In a standard hybrid, it's a good 30%. And despite early concerns, it wasn't that big. I think the data's held up. It is that big. Now, if you get a 30% reduction in energy or fuel consumption, that's a really big piece. There's nothing else sitting around that's that much bigger except a pure electric vehicle, a battery electric vehicle. But that has much higher cost and it's got sort of serious flexibility and inconvenience issues. Okay, so is it safe to say that, and you did say, um, that we really should be putting a lot more focus on, on hybrids? I mean, hybrids have almost been, I don't want to say forgotten, but they're not getting nearly the intention that they that they got, you know, back in the '90s, at least in the U.S. It's all electric vehicles now is all the rage, and I think hybrids are something 
we should be putting a lot more energy into, no pun intended. Um, I think hybrids, you know, they're, they're, they're a faster way to get the, the efficiency gains and the CO2 reduction, in my opinion. So would you agree with that? I think they're both faster, and that's a, a really important word. The rate at which we can bring down emissions is what really matters, not so much what the ultimate potential is. But we'll get to that in 20, 30, 40 <laughs> years. Uh, that's a long way away. But what we really need is, is sort of effective action now. And there are other attractive features of sort of emphasis, emphasizing providing incentives for hybrids. Because if you made the incentive for a, a straight hybrid vehicle, which doesn't plug in, a plug-in hybrid and a battery electric, suppose you made them all comparable somewhere in the two and a half to $4,000 per vehicle, maybe based on size. But at that level, which at the straightforward hybrid end would, would cover the, the difference in purchase price, more or less, mm-hmm. that would incentivize stronger, a stronger market and would incentivize the, the manufacturers who already have this technology sort of under control. It would push them to make it better and get out of the, the current sense that hybrid vehicles are a bit sluggish to drive. My experience is not really. I think that's a, a sort of a, a carryover from the Toyota Prius initial market thrust, which was not for a, a fun-to-drive vehicle. It was much more on the utilitarian end of the spectrum. And I think that's what's holding hybrids back some. But that can be fixed, you know, somewhat bigger battery and sort of a more aggressive uh, driving schedule. And we got to control that anyway in a much broader societal way. We are all driving too fast and too aggressively, but it gets the adrenaline going and that's fun. So we're we're not very good at um, behaving. Right. Okay. So, so great. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so I did, you know, I was really excited to have you on as a guest this week, I just have to say. And I made a post on LinkedIn that you were coming up as my next guest. And I asked sort of uh, my connections and my followers, you know, if you could ask Professor Haywood one question, what would it be? Because we may have a chance to ask him these questions. So I got a lot of really good questions, not only through LinkedIn. I got people texting me, calling me. Um, I got a lot, a lot of questions. So it was really hard for me to kind of trim down um, what I would ask you today. But I just want to make sure, are you okay if we kind of switch gears a little bit here and dedicate some of our time to asking some of their questions? I'll just give one more plug for hybrids. Oh, sure. Be- uh, and, and let people know a little more why it's, it's so good. That the, the, the technology is well-developed and putting it all together, which is a challenge and complicated, we're already well into that. That, by the way, putting these double powertrain combinations together really gets one into serious 
system integration efforts. And one thing I've learned by my involvement in this business is that when you've got two major interacting systems with lots of variables, it really takes time to it takes time to learn what the key variables are, which the most sensitive ones are, and and how you ought to choose the values so that you get a a, a well optimized combination. You say, well, why don't people just study that and get on with it and do it? Well. That's what they do, but there's a lot of modeling, analysis, experimentation, building prototypes, testing those prototypes, improving those prototypes. Now you start to see why that takes a lot of time where you've got complexity and lots of variables that matter. So I wanted to say that, look, we need to incentivize the market so that they're they realize buying a hybrid is a good idea. And we need to force that market to grow by purchasing pressure. But also we've got to realize even that takes time, even though it's pretty well understood stuff at the piece-by-piece -piece level, that integration is a major task ahead for all of us engineers who are involved in this. Yeah, very nicely said. So thank you for that. Um, very nice summary of hybrids and their potential there. So now are you okay if I go into the questions? <laughs> yes, fine. Okay, perfect, perfect. So this first question, um, it's a question that I get a lot from uh, younger combustion researchers. So I wanted to see and they wanted to see kind of what your input was on this. So what advice would you give to students thinking about going into combustion research? especially given all the criticism that's been aimed at IC engines these days? Well, not the first time I've got that question. Uh, it, in fact, it first came up when, when I was at a, giving a seminar at Stanford University um, about the future of engines. So very appropriate question. And it was asked in this way, would you advise a graduate student to, to go into combustion, let's call it combustion engineering, or electrochemistry. And I say it that way because one obviously relates to engines and one relates to battery electric vehicles, and they're very different disciplines, and it's unlikely you can get to real depth in both. Um, so it's a good question. And I think I will go back to really two statements. One is, well, lots of talk about is the IC engine dead? And the clear answer is no. And if you look at people's projections of, of the number of vehicles around, it's growing worldwide, it's the order of one billion now, and it's going to, people think it'll grow by 2050 or so to maybe. 2 billion, maybe it won't, but those are projections. That's an incredible expansion. And expanding IC engines, better IC engines, making sure they are better over time is going to be a vital part of that. But I have noticed that the media's much less interested in 
how do you make better engines than they used to be? And they're much more interested in system and fleet-based questions, you know, what's going to grow, what isn't, and what's going to dominate. So there's been a real shift. I think the answer to young people is ask yourself the question, which area of engineering science grabs me? Which do I really find drawn to trying to understand better? Because it's a really good idea to choose a professional area that matches your your sort of natural capabilities and especially instincts. And, And so if you're thinking of going into the automotive business and you're really interested in sort of engines and combustion, recognize it's a changing future, not a disappearing future yet. Will it be eventually? We can't answer that question, but make sure it grabs you so it really is your area of interest. And if, um, you know, if your interest is in, in vehicles, how uh, the transportation system works and, and therefore much more a system-based uh, focus, that, and you get grabbed by that, that's what should help guide you on which particular path do you choose to go, to go down. And I will say that I'm always amazed that um, A... We ask people, what's your undergraduate degree in? And you get typecast as a physicist for life. (laughs) That's so unwise because one's evolving experience and changing sort of directions during one's long, hopefully long life. People do lots of shifts. Some don't. I've stayed in mechanical engineering, but many, many do. So you're not stuck, but get involved in something that really grabs you. Yeah, so there you go. To all the young researchers out there, great advice from Professor Haywood. And I and I completely agree with you. And it's, that's kind of what I tell people as well. What excites you? Because what you don't want to do is go into something just because you think there's maybe better job prospects and then you, you hate it you know, the rest of your life, go into something that grabs you. And if you become really good at it, it is possible to shift into other areas, right? I mean, it's learning how to solve problems, learning how to apply theory and experiments to a problem. Um, So awesome advice. So I I really appreciate that. And I know my listeners are really going to appreciate that as well. So this is a taking that question a little bit further. So let's say you did decide to, to go into combustion and say you're a graduate student just coming out of school and you did your degree in combustion or internal combustion engines to be even more specific, what type of job would you look for in today's environment? What would your advice be there? Well, I uh, at least in part will duck that one because I'm I'm not looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're all set. That, you don't have that, to worry about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm all set. Um Okay, we can... I, no, 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 I, I was just pausing for breath okay. to collect my thoughts. I think if, you're, if you've gone through an undergraduate degree and even got a master's degree in engineering or gone beyond that to a doctorate, um, what 
you've got to think through what, what kind of, say, development or research do I like being involved in? More applied, more fundamental, very fundamental, a mix of both. Do you like modeling, doing computer based simulations, developing those simulations, using the, there's, there's lots of questions like that, that one should ask oneself. And then they lead into different sort of job definitions. Are you going to be a development engineer, a design engineer? You work in a small company where you've got a constant shift in the device that you're trying to do, design to be really cost-effective. Um, and that shifts, if you're a small company, it shifts a little less, unless you choose to shift it, if it's a bigger company. So you've got to address those kind of questions. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So now let's shift focus a little bit to engine technologies. And I think a lot of people would love to hear your answer to this question. I got many people who asked me this question to ask you. What one engine technology, maybe some of these up-and-coming engine technology, or something kind of current, what one engine technology are you most excited about now? Well, I don't think there's a, a simple answer to that or even a single answer because what really matters now is is taking the whole engine it, and viewing it as a system with many components identifying which of those components or design variables most affect the things you want to improve, and it's usually reduce fuel consumption, reduce the emissions, make it more flexible, uh, make it cheaper, uh, all that sort of stuff, take up less space. There's lots of less obvious real uh, things that engines have to do in transportation spaces. Space the engine takes up is paramount. So... There are all those um, areas, and I think we've been steadily making progress in, in a number of areas, and, and, and one is how do we control the breathing, the breathing of air that the engine obviously has to do to get the air into the cylinders. And, and there, are, there are lots of ways of um, minimizing the standard pumping loss. You have to push the burnt gases out of the cylinder and pull the fresh air into the cylinder in a gasoline engine. And you don't want to do work pushing in and pushing out. And if you have a lower intake pressure, which the older standard engine had than exhaust pressure, you do do work. You do some significant work, especially at um, lighter loads when the engine isn't putting out much torque. Well, there's lots of ways of, of varying the valve timing, boosting the engine with a turbocharger. All of these are being explored. So we're diversifying the agenda. There's more pieces in the agenda, more components get involved. And, and it, bringing all of this together in the better and better integrated, better and better interacting ways, that's the sort of engine I want to look at uh, for the future. There's another area that I, I've been interested in, but it's quite challenging. It's really interesting if you look at the real world and realize we've got lots and lots of different designs of engines, but they all buy the same gasoline. 
And you say, why, why is that? Well, it's easier to do this complex engine integrating and then next engine improving process together if the gasoline is, is a well-known and fixed source of energy. And for that reason, we decide, well, let's go with simplicity, even though we lose something. Because when you're driving your car, sometimes you really need the octane, the anti-knock uh, properties, resistance, the anti-knock resistance that's built into the fuel by the petroleum industry. You really need that or the engine will knock, make bad noises and in due course could be damaged. But most of the time you don't need that. And so one thing I've been working on is are there ways to uh, have two fuels, a really good one and a not so good one, and blend them on board and give the engine what it needs when it needs it rather than much of the time give it champagne when all it needs is rough and ready wine. <laughs> um, Good analogy. <laughs> and, and the answer is there are real benefits, but you got to keep it simple, straightforward, and convenient. That's a very important word, convenient for the customer, the owner and user of the vehicle. And that's where the challenge comes in because it's, it's a hell of a lot easier to have one fuel. Well, we've got three. Quite why we have the mid-grade, I'm not sure. Two grades would probably be enough, but uh, we do. But So we have limited choices in fuels, and we put up with the fact we lose a bit to save money. So I'm I'm a sort of I've become a, a sort of an engine systems is my first focus in what I like and and, and more these days what I want what I want to work on though I still work on much more focused topics I think cleaning up the diesel engine is a very very large task for the engine engineering community and it's it's a vital task the 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 particulate emissions and the oxides of nitrogen emissions from diesel engines are highly problematic they're expensive to reduce in serious big ways and we've really got to find some new solutions and we're working on it but nothing's really proved to be good enough yet good enough for all the demands of the real world. But that's a really big and, and a, as yet far from being solved problem, really cleaning up the diesel engine. Because you say get rid of internal combustion engines, but nobody's got a good solution for the large trucks that haul all of the freight that all our many online purchases and beyond demand. Well, according to uh, Elon Musk, they're going to be manufacturing these large semis with with big batteries in them now so we'll see how that goes though my sense on that is that i've seen studies that look at well how much space and how much weight 
do these batteries for long-haul trucks add to the vehicle? And, and that's a, a very challenging task to come out on the, the right, the good economic side on that, on that trade-off. New technology, what does it cost? How much does it impact the, the functionality of the vehicle and the tasks involved? Yes. So you touched a bit um, on fuels there, and I'm really curious to hear your take on synthetic fuels and what you think about those as a means to store off-peak energy from renewable sources. Do you think this could become mainstream? Could e-fuels be a viable way to reduce the carbon footprint of internal combustion engines? What are your thoughts? Well, my basic discipline in engineering science is thermodynamics and and it, it tends to be the topic where when i meet some of my ex-students they say uh, they say oh that's the that's the discipline i liked least <laughs> fair enough it's both seems simple but isn't now so if you start to make fuels using another source of energy you've already given yourself a disadvantage because you probably had to work to produce that first fuel and now you're going to lose a significant part of its energy in converting it into, quote, another fuel or source of energy. Now, people's response to that tends to be, well, I'm going to use solar generated electricity that doesn't that has no negative impacts it's not that simple it does have some negative impacts and you've still got the double cost and one's got to be very efficient and clever to overcome that sort of doubling of the negatives in the production because you do it twice so because of that, my, I, my starting point is I'm um, not that encouraging about finding viable real-world alternatives, though I don't want to close it out, and I respect that many people involved in that know a lot and are trying smartly to find a path through this complicated development process. So... I think it should be on our exploratory development agenda, very definitely. But I don't think we can count on it. And some of these that bring in biomass as as part of the finding a low greenhouse gas emitting sort of liquid hydrocarbon uh, that could be used as a fuel... Um, they run into other problems, like it's the source is distributed over large land areas, and that's ecologically damaging in its own area, in its own right, and also gives you major sort of collection and transportation, pulling things into a, a focal point in, in land area where you can do large scale processing. So I I don't rule that out, but it ha- doesn't happen to be one of my uh, enthusiasms. Okay. Yeah, there's no doubt that that's a very challenging topic. And 
like you said, all of these things have trade-offs, right? So there is really no silver bullet. Um, yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, I agree with you that it's it's very challenging, and I agree with you that we definitely need to keep looking at it, though. Um, there are a lot of smart people looking at it, but uh, there is no free lunch here. Whatever we're going to do to kind of solve this problem, there's always going to be downsides as well. And one thing to add to that is that we we use fuels and we use vehicles at very large scale. They're driven a lot. There are lots and lots and lots of them, and they consume an awful lot of fuel. So the, the, this very large scale, it, it just gets out of the range when people who are not involved in the business can understand how big the challenge is. Because if you've got a good idea, but it only captures 10% of the market, and only 10% of the vehicles out there driving around use this wonderful new technology, you only get 10% of the impact. You've got to get up to 50, 60, 70, 80% if you really want to have big impact. Absolutely. Okay, now I have a website. You probably haven't visited it yet, but maybe you will after this interview. Um, I have a website called HugYourEngine.com. And the idea of this website, or one of the ideas, is I spotlight combustion researchers. So I kind of want to, you know, every month or so, I have a new combustion researcher, and it's kind of an interview format where I ask them questions and kind of really highlight the great work they're doing and how they're kind of helping, uh, you know, push combustion forward. There are two questions that I always ask them. I ask them many questions, but there are two questions that they really have fun answering, and I wanted to get your take on these questions, if you don't mind. The first one is, what is your favorite type of flame? And the second one is, what is your favorite type of fuel? So if you can answer those, and then maybe why. Why are those your favorites? Well, one will be real, and I think one may have to be imaginary. But let me start with the favorite type of flame. And I will approach that from an aesthetic point of view. And... In the second edition of, of my textbook, Internal Combustion Engine Fundamentals, which came out in April of 2018, I decided in the combustion part of the book, when I'm talking about different types of flames, I decided to put in a photograph of a candle flame. And here are the reasons. It, it's a very... Pr- pragmatic example of a diffusion flame where the fuel and the air start out separate and have to mix before they can burn. And we all know candle flames and they have special sort of associations. The image of a candle flame has special associations that we're often very fond of or mean a great deal to us. So I put a picture of a candle flame uh, and it's in the start of the spark ignition engine combustion chapter and it, it really works very well side by side with a schematic of a diffusion flame that's labeled and I even labeled the candle flame. Now unfortunately it's black and white but um, we weren't doing too much color. Uh, but the colors of the candle flame are what make it, for me, my favorite aesthetic flame. Okay. It's not that good a flame because it forms soot, 
But nature was friendly and, and in a candle flame, unless uh, it's blown out of where it ought to be, how it ought to be by wind or air, air motion, it does form soot, but it burns it all up, mostly. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's interesting. I don't, I've never had that as an answer before. That's great, to candle flame. Now, fuels. Yeah. Well, I think my ideal is a hydrocarbon with none of the problems that burning real hydrocarbons produce impact the environment. Um, now, that's it's not clear that exists. And going back to our earlier comments on manufactured fuels, um, maybe, but you've got to be real careful if you assume that, say, the hydrocarbon biomass that went into that genuinely was non-greenhouse gas emitting before you used it to form as a as a raw material to form a low greenhouse gas emitting flame. So I think on the ideal fuel, it, it's nice to have an ideal that motivates us, but it's incredibly demanding. Correct. Okay, very interesting answers. Now, do you have a favorite engine? I just kind of have to know this. And I mean, if you could hug any engine, you know, what's your favorite over the years? Maybe something you worked on or just something you had in your own vehicle? Or do you have a favorite engine? I'd like to know. Not really. Uh, I, I'm not, not quite what people often think I am. I'm not an engine nut. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I never have been, but I'm I'm really interested in what goes on inside engines because it's incredibly complicated, and it's it's a very high level intellectual uh, puzzle to try and sort out and explain. So again, I I think I'll say I'm, I'm ducking that because that's not what draws me to engines. It, it's the complexity of the applied science that goes on inside because that underlines how, how intensely detailed and, and both detailed and sophisticated at the same time our natural world is in this particular uh, area of fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can I can kind of relate to that because I I started off doing engine research not because I was an engine guy at all, um, but I wanted to do computational fluid dynamics, and I was told engines are one of the hardest problems you could do, you know, turbulent flow, multiphase flow, chemical reacting flow, moving boundaries, all of these things that make modeling and CFD very difficult. Engines have it, and so I can I can kind of relate. Since then, I've become more and more of an engine person, but I certainly did not start out that way. So that, that's a good, that's very interesting. I think people would be very interested to hear that. So you talked about your second edition of the book. So, you, so my next question is kind of related to that. So I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I have the first edition of your book 
Um, I bought it in graduate school, so I was a student at the University of Wisconsin Engine Research Center. And for my IC Engines class, we used your book, and I probably bought it in, say, 1996. And then I realized your second edition came out only a couple of years ago, so it's very recent. So can you talk a little bit about – so this is a two-part question. One is, what were the major updates in your second edition? What motivated you to put a second edition out? And if you write a third edition someday – is there anything that you already feel like, wow, I would, if I were to write a third edition, I would add that? Do you, I mean, I know it's only been a couple of years since your second edition came out. You probably don't want to think about it yet, but is there anything you already know you'd want to include in a third edition? No, I don't want to think about a third edition, but I'll come back. <laughs> but I'll come back to that okay. and I'll comment on your question. Um, I rewrote it. In this way, um, obviously our knowledge of engines has steadily grown over the last 30 years, and there's 30 years between publishing my first edition and publishing my second edition. Um, and, and what I wanted to do, and it took a long time, was put in all the critical new material that had been developed since the first edition and, and key areas there were certain diesel combustion, emissions formations, processes, um, some pragmatic areas like engine friction, um, the, our understanding of flow inside the engine, which is critical to how much power it produces, how the combustion process works, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, those were key areas. Uh, and I wanted to actually put in more fuels. We've talked quite a bit about fuels. Put in more fuels material distributed where it belonged uh, because in the first edition there, wa- there wasn't a lot. There was some. And then I uh, wanted to seriously update other areas where we'd learned a lot more. And then finally, the rest of it, I either cut it out because it was old or I gave it a, a, a serious edit to smooth it and make it uh, easier to understand. And so at some level, it took me 15 years to work through all of that to get the second edition finished. Now, not full time, but maybe a, a third or more of my time. So that's a five-year five year full-time job. And that's why not many people write big and deep books about major fields that have lots and lots of detail and complexity. So I'm glad I did it. Um, people sometimes say, well, electric vehicles are going to take over, so why did you bother? I've just talked earlier in this session about why electric vehicles are unlikely to fully take over, and the big question is how much, and we'll need a lot of engines to make up the rest. But I don't feel in any way disappointed. I'm glad I did it. Now, a third edition, it's a lot of work, and you really need you really need the field to develop so that it's worth the effort. There's, there's big changes, and there have been big changes. This is not anywhere near the same book. It's got lots more in it. It's a bit longer. 
They're both big. Sorry about that. They're both big, but it has to be big to get in the stuff that people really need to be able to find if they want to understand all the parts of engine operation and design that are important. And also, I'll add, my wife wouldn't put up with me <laughs> starting on a starting on a third edition. So sorry, guys, not like yeah. It. The pandemic's been going well for you at home. You don't want to rock the boat at all with a third edition. <laughs> so, uh, and I have to say, my first edition, um, you know, I've had it for a long time now, and it, it's starting to fall apart. It's a hard cover. The binding's kind of breaking. So I'm definitely going to pick up a copy of your second edition here pretty soon. I want all the updates as well. So. So thank you for that. And thank you for all the time you spent on these books. I mean, you've you had a tremendous impact on our field and the researchers in our field um, with these books. And everybody kind of goes back to your book, you know, as the reference. Um, so thank you very much for everything you've put into those books. Well, thank, well, thank you. I appreciate that feedback. Yeah, no problem. Um, do you have any projects coming up that our listeners might be interested in learning about? Well, they're more in the systems area, so yes. And I, I think uh, marine engines, the, the ones that propel our big ships, they're starting to get, get regulated in a serious and very demanding way. And if you try and think of a replacement for really large marine diesels that are environmentally friendly, we don't have any very convincing items on the list yet. So we're starting to look at that. And, and then um, there are other areas where the environment inside the cylinder is attractive and um, for doing chemistry. Um, and I'm working with some people who are looking into that. So those are a couple of areas to be honest, I'm not as busy as I once was, uh, and uh, I'm probably not going to crank it all up to get that busy again. <laughs> well, you've done you've done more than enough in your career, so um, I understand those those sound like two really interesting projects. Though, look forward to kind of seeing what comes out of those. Okay, so we have one more question, and this one maybe maybe a little more fun than the other questions, but our listeners are wondering. And or I'm wondering at least, what is one fun fact about you that we may not know about or might not be aware of? Well, you might guess this, but I thought this is something about me that's worth mentioning, and it is lighter. My dad was a project guy. He was he ended up an academic engineer, but he started out leaving school at age 14 and did a trade apprenticeship for 5 years, actually in a company in England that made engines, internal combustion engines and steam engines. Uh interesting how I've gone back to that and there was no obvious reason. Anyway, he was a project guy and and the family, my family back in England often did family projects. My family here, I've had three boys, was the same. We were a project family. And as part of that, if they wanted to start a project, get me to help them, I would always say, draw a sketch. I'm a very 
pencil and paper, sketch it out, be careful, put details in, because you learn so much that way. And when I talk with people uh, in my office, my graduate students, they finally learn that I'm going to make lots of notes, but they'd better do it too, because I sometimes said, you do know I'm not going to give you my notes. You've got to make your own. <laughs> but back to the projects. Our family has always been a strong project families, family, and I always said to them when they were young and wanted to start something, draw a sketch. And the amusing piece is, first of all, I can do that. I, I'm actually an amateur artist and do a lot of landscape sketching and painting, but never mind that. But I'd say, that, say draw a sketch. And what I find fascinating now, uh, they're around 50 in age, they, t they say to their children, draw a sketch. So my, my thought is, it really is a good idea to get the MIT motto, the hand and the mind working together. And I find a pencil in the hand on a piece of paper helps me get the mind and the hand working together. And I'm amused that my children have become convinced that that's a message they should pass on. Wow, very cool story. All right, so we're done with the interview. And I just want to thank you again. This has been this has been awesome. Um, the fact that you agreed to do this podcast, Professor Haywood, it, it's huge for me, and I think I think for all of our listeners as well. I know people are going to be very excited to hear what you have to say. Um, so thank you so much. And I'm not going to say I look forward to the third edition, but I will. <laughs> I am going to purchase the second edition. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. And I hope I hope I'll be able to see you sometime soon. Maybe we can hug an engine together. Um, maybe I can convince you to work on the third edition. We'll see. But really appreciate your time. And thank you for all of your very valuable insights. So thank you. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this very much. And um, my pleasure. I'm glad we could do it. That's it for this episode of The Eclectic Highway. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can grab the RSS feed or listen directly at eclectichighway.com. And be sure to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Eclectic Highway, on Instagram, at The Eclectic Highway, and you can follow me on LinkedIn, Peter Kelly Senecal. We'll see you next time, guys, and remember... The future is eclectic.